morning. My name is Kaylee, and I'm from the uh, teens ministry here at Christchurch. Um, today, I'll be reading from Luke 23, verse 44 to 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eddie. Um, Sure, let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much um, for this Good Friday. Um, It's a good Friday because Sunday is coming. Thank you that um, today we can look at your word. And I pray, Lord, that today we will see your amazing grace, your amazing love for each one of us. And I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. There are... Um, moments in our lives, there are events in our lives that really affect us deeply, that changes us. Um, they are, please, Mike. See, that doesn't put in the children's ministry. There we go. Um, if you were to Google uh, life-changing events, I presume you'll find a, a whole lot of things. Uh, I was thinking of first man landing on the moon, Maybe the Titanic sinking, if you're a little bit older, you'll tell me some of the world wars. Um, Those are life-changing events. Uh, But for me, uh, the thing that comes to my mind that changed our world a little bit, it was a meme. Not too long ago, uh, you'd know this meme if if you've seen it. There's a guy watching the TV, very much relaxing, and then our president comes onto the screen and says, tomorrow we're going to have a family meeting. And there's like a bomb under this guy. He runs to check his and pick and pay, and he buys his trolley full like this of toilet paper. <laughs> that, that, that for me, that, you know, that sticks in my mind as a life-changing event. Uh, there are relational uh, events that changes us. Um, I know I was significantly impacted when I got married. Uh, when my first child was born, I was told by those who have three or more children when their wife came to them and said, you know, my darling, I'm pregnant with number three. That's when things really got rough. But um, so I was told. I remember as a teenager, by the way, teenagers, welcome here with us, here in the service with us. I was remember as a teenager, my life came to an end when I asked the first girl to go to the movies with me, and she said no. <laughs> so... <laughs> And then my life began again the next week when she said yes. So um, life-changing events in our lives. Uh, They are relational. uh, You know, one of the big relationship killers is death. You know, um, I I speak from experience, but I know there's many people here whose families are significantly changed. Those relationships and those families are significantly changed when a loved one dies. Um, today, uh, we're looking at a death, and I, I would suggest this death is so, so relational that it 
uh, and so significant that it affects every single human being that ever walked the face of the earth. It's a historical event. Uh, we know about it. It's Jesus on the cross. It's 2,000 years ago. We are looking at Jesus' death through the record of a guy called Luke, uh, one of the writers um, of what we call the Gospels. Now, Luke was a stickler for history uh, and, for, and for detail. He was a doctor, so he's a details person. He was obsessed to find out exactly what happened that faithful Easter. If you'd like, you, he was trying to get behind all the fake news of that first Easter. He wanted to know exactly what happened. So what did he do? He went around and he interviewed eyewitnesses. He went and found all the people who saw these events. He, he, he asked them what happened. He compared their stories with other people's stories. And then he sat down and he wrote what we now has, have as the Gospel of Luke, the story, the eyewitness account of Jesus' life and specifically his death. In our little story today that was read that Kelly read to us, there are three eyewitnesses. I don't know if you noticed them. Three guys, three groups that Luke interviewed, talked to. The centurion, we have a group called the crowd, and we have a group called Jesus' acquaintances. And Luke is determined to tell us that they saw something, something real, and that thing, what they saw, this event that they saw, changed them forever. Uh, those three last sentences that Kelly read for us, you know, just glance at it. It's, it's, it's so clear. Luke says, when the centurion saw something, he did something. The crowds, when they saw something, and the acquaintances, they watched something. So, clear as day, these three groups saw and a momentous event. And that's why I want to take us today. That's what I, all I wanted to do for us today is show us what, he, what they saw. And what they saw was recorded in the first little bit that Kelly read for us. Those first, let's call it three or four verses or four or three sentences. Let me read it for us. It's in Luke chapter 23. Uh, my Bible has got on page 884. But if you have a Bible, please open it there. Maybe on your phone. Um, read with me. This is what they saw. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Three very important things happened there. Three big things happened there. We have darkness. We have some sort of commotion at the temple, and then we have Jesus, what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Those are the three things we're going to look at. And, and let's start with the darkness. After Jesus was nailed to the cross, the Bible tells us uh, it was maybe six, seven, nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, at the sixth hour in the Bible, that's midday, ninth hour, three o'clock. That's how they counted in those days. Jesus on the cross at the sixth hour, which is midday, darkness came. Complete and utter darkness came. Now, it sounds like what we would experience when the solar eclipse comes. Solar eclipse, as best as I can explain it, is if the sun is here, the moon is here, the earth is on the other side, the sun shines on the moon, and then the shadows fall on the earth. That's why we don't have sun. That's a solar eclipse. 
But it can't be a solar eclipse because the time it happened was Easter or Passover. Now, I don't know if you woke up early uh, at night, you know, maybe you're a um, sleepwalker. If you went outside today, you'd see it was bright, the moon was bright, because Easter is determined by the moon. So that's why Easter changes every year, the date changes. It's not like Christmas, that's on this day, that's Christmas. Easter changes, because the determining factor is the full moon. So when it's full moon, sun is here, the earth is here, and the moon is on the other side. So the moon couldn't get behind the sun and the earth. So it couldn't be a solar eclipse. So something not normal happened that day. Something out of the norm. If you want to call it supernatural, I would call it an act of God. Now, there are historical records that this darkness happened. Last week, Martin showed us that three historians were actually fighting, not if it happened, but they were fighting about how it happened. If you read the verses there, it says the sunlight, the sun's light failed. Not faded, not blocked, it failed. Actually what it means is the sun stopped shining. That's what it means. The sun stopped what the sun does, which is shine. It's a supernatural event. Anyway, when you look at the Bible, when it talks about darkness, that's what happened. Darkness came over the whole land. The Bible associates darkness with God's judgment. Outer darkness, another word for outer darkness is hell. Hell is the place where God pours out his full and final judgment for sin. So when the darkness came, it symbolized, it showed that God was judging sin. That's why it was dark. But the real question is why? Why did the darkness come? It came, showing God's judgment, but for what, to what end? Well, have a look at the very next sentence. It was about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land, while the sunlights faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That and there is at the same time. So we have this darkness, at the same time, the temple curtain was torn in two. Now, what happened at the temple? God would save his people, bring them out of Egypt, brought them to himself. He said, I want you to live like this, Ten Commandments. He said to them, this is the good life. If you go about killing one another, that's not going to be a great idea. If you go about stealing from one another, that's not a great idea. I want you to love me and listen to me, and that's the good life. I'm your king. I'm your rescuer. But what did Israel do? Israel said, no ways. Catherine said, stay away, S-N. That's what she spelled out, by the way, S-I-N. Stay away, God. I'm in charge. No to your rules. That's what happens there. Israel said, I'm not interested in your rules, God. I want to live life my own way. And what God said is he warned them. If you want to live like that, I will judge you. I will punish you. Punishment for sin is death. So what happened at the temple? I'm an Israelite. I sin. What do I do? I bring my bull, my cow, my dove, my whatever. Bring it to the temple. That dies. I pay my price for my sin by killing a dove or a bull. And then I could live. So in essence, what happens at the temple in those days where Israel's sins were dealt with, God dealt with his sins, and so they could live. But in actual fact, they didn't meet God face to face there at the temple. If you think about the building, there was this massive curtain, many meters high, that separated 
what they call the most holy place, God, where God is, that's where God is, and the rest of us, the sinners, we're on this side. And this massive curtain separated them. Separated them from God's righteous judgment for their sins. Because how can a bull and a cow and a dove pay for my sins? So they had to be protected. That curtain was there to protect them. Those sacrifices that they were sacrificing were only pointing to a bigger sacrifice one day that will actually deal with their sins. But for now, this massive curtain protected them from God's holy and righteous judgment. If someone had to go in there behind that curtain, they would die. Anyway, at this same time as the darkness comes, the temple curtain was torn into. And we are told from top to bottom. The man would tear that temple, kind of you and I would go in there and tear that curtain, it would be from the bottom to the top. But this, from the top to the bottom. Why? Again, it's another act of God. And what happens? This temple, boom, open. You could go in. The most holy place is now open. That's what happened when the temple has disappeared or it's torn in two. You and I, if we were there, we could walk straight into the most holy place. The place where you used to go, nobody, uh, the high priest goes in there once a year. After multiple sacrifices, he could go in there. But none of us could go in there. If we went in there, we would die. But now it's open. The way into the very presence of God is open. So what happened? The darkness, God's judgment for sin, supernaturally the temple curtain was torn in two and you and I could go straight into the presence of God. We could go home, basically. That's what we were made for. We were made to be with God. Now we can go home. That's what happened. And none of the men, none, nobody did anything. It was all an act of God. That's supernatural darkness. God's pointing to God's judgment. That's supernatural, the temple being caught and being torn in two, opening of a way home. But there was one more thing that happened at the same time as well. And that was Jesus dying on the cross. Look with me, verse 46. We have the darkness, we have the temple curtain torn in two, and then verse 36 says, uh, 46 says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Do you notice what Jesus said and what he did? Remember, Jesus was on the cross for about six hours. Sunday night, we will hear all seven things that Jesus said, but for now we're looking at one. Seven phrases in six hours. Basically, Jesus was silent. He never said a word on the cross. But when he opened his mouth, he said something very, very important. I don't know about you, but if I had a few hours to live, and I only had a few sentences to say to my family, there's no ways I'm going to talk to them about sports or weather or my work. There's no ways I'm going to talk to them about unimportant things. I'm going to talk to them about what's truly in my heart if I had six hours to live and only a few sentences to say that in. That's exactly what Jesus did. When he speaks from the cross, he speaks from his heart, and he says very, very important things. And this is what he said. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Now that phrase is in the Bible. Jesus knew his Old Testament Bible. It comes from Psalm 31. That phrase is in Psalm 31. In that psalm, King David is in trouble. He's suffering for doing what is right. And you know what he does in that psalm? He doesn't pick up his sword. He doesn't fight back. He says, no, no. God, you got this. I'm not going to fight back. You're the rock of my salvation. I am going to trust that you know what on earth is going on. You know why I am suffering. I'm not going to fight back. I'm going to listen to you, and I'm going to trust you. That's what Psalm 31, that phrase is. And then David says, Lord God, into your hands I commit my spirit. David is the suffering righteous one. That's the best word I could come up with describing him. Instead of fighting back, taking up his sword and fighting those who are making him suffer for doing what is right, he's saying, no, God, you've got this. You know what's going on. I'm going to trust you. Now, Jesus takes those same words and see how he changes it. He doesn't say, Lord God. He says, Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, Psalm 31, that's me. I am the suffering righteous one. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He always listened to his father. Now he's on the cross and he's suffering for doing what is right. And he says, Father, you got this. Despite all the pain, the suffering, wherever I am, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you for your plan that you're putting into place here. Now, we have glimpses of that kind of trust. I've seen that with my little sons when they were younger, when our kids are about one and two. You can pick up a two-year-old, one-year-old, you can walk with him up to, I'm petrified of heights, but to a cliff. And they're whizzing and smiling. Oh, what's this? You could walk up to a lion, a roaring lion, or a massive elephant, and they would be like, sure, daddy, you got this. I'm trusting you. That's the kind of trust that Jesus is showing you. You got this. Father, you got this. But notice the tone of his voice when he says that. I never saw this. Jesus spoke in a loud voice. On the cross, Jesus hanging to the human eye, that's losing. That's lost. Think about it. Now I'm going to show my ignorance. Argentina played who in the final, World Cup final? France. There we go. Imagine France walking on the beach going, yeah, we won. Ah, no, we lost. You know, yes, we lost the World Cup. No, what were they doing? They were walking around there scoffing and maybe swearing a few words. And they're not going around there shouting victorious when they lost. You know? Privilege of being at the deathbed of, uh, of people. When people are dying, they are soft-spoken. You could barely hear what they're saying. Jesus is dying on the cross, and he speaks with a loud voice. How? What's going on here? That's like when, when, when the, the, the Argentinians scored that last goal in the winning, that, that penalty shootout. That's the voice he used. Yes, I'm dying. <laughs> You think, Jesus, what's going on? What on earth is going on here? Why are you? What's going on? Now, 
Throughout his ministry, Jesus would um, say this statement. He says, I'm on the way to Jerusalem to die. Many times he said that to his disciples. And you read in the Bible, the disciples was like, Angas. I'm on the way to Jerusalem to die. That's what he said. And now, I'm dying. (laughs) That is the Father's plan for me. Jesus speaks with a victorious voice, a loud voice on the cross, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my... I trust your plan. I trust my whole life into your plan. Jesus knew that that darkness that came over the world, God's righteous judgment for sin, was meant to be poured out onto him. He knew that. He knew it was being poured out into him instead of us. He was the righteous one suffering the wrath of his father for us. That plan has been put in place before the world began. The Bible tells us that was the Father's plan from before he made any human being. Knowing that we would sin. Knowing that he would have to pour his righteous wrath for our sin onto his innocent son. That was his plan before he made us and still he made us. That darkness came at the right time. That temple curtain was torn in two at the right time. Jesus was on the cross at the right time. And then look what happened. That last bit of verse 47. And having said this, he breathed his last. After all of this, Jesus died. But not like when you and I die, out of control. I'm going to die maybe today, maybe tomorrow. Jesus breathed his last. He literally gave up his spirit committing himself to his father's plan at the right time to breathe his last. That's what's happening here. Complete control over when it happens, how it happens, and where it happens. The father's plan from before the world began was put into place to pour out his righteous judgment on his innocent son so that you and I could live carefully, orchestrated, carefully planned at the right time. That is what those three eyewitnesses saw. That is what changed their lives forever. The most elaborate, the biggest plan the world has ever seen, God's plan to save you and me, that is what they saw. That is what changed them. It's no ordinary day, no ordinary event. It's the exact day that the Father chose to pour out his righteous wrath for all mankind's sin, past, present, and future, on Jesus. That is what they saw, and Luke is determined that you and I would see that too. The real question is what on earth do we do with that? What do we do with this, what we've come to know as this momentous news, this beautiful news, this epic news? Well, thank you, Lord, that there's three eyewitnesses. These three eyewitnesses, and we can learn a lot from them.
Let's start with the first one. Take a deep breath. Let's start with the first one. It's there in verse 47, which is the centurion. Let me read it for us. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The centurion was a Roman soldier. He's not a Jew. He was submitting to Roman rule. That meant he did what Rome told him. Otherwise, he would die. That's the soldier's role. Pilate, his boss, said, yes, Jesus, go and crucify him. So he takes Jesus up to the place of the skull, probably the one with the hammer and the nail, probably the one who cast the lots for Jesus' clothes. He's probably the one that picked up that branch with a sour wine and gave it to Jesus to drink. He was definitely mocking Jesus, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But then he saw the darkness, the temple curtain. He heard Jesus' loud voice and what Jesus said. And what happened to him? He changed. Have a look how he changed. Crucifying Jesus, that's honoring Rome. That's doing my bit for Rome. Now he's honoring God, the Jews' God. This man's father, he's honoring What is he saying? He's saying, surely this is an innocent man. And he's praising God, saying, your fingerprints are all over this. So what's happening here? We have a shift in allegiance, isn't it? We have the embryos, the beginnings of faith, from trusting the old boss to trusting the new one. Rome's killed guilty people. That was it. They they prided themselves at that law court that they would find out who's guilty and they get punished and the innocent one gets set free. But now the Roman soldier says, this man is surely innocent. Luke interviewed this guy and he said, that was a life-changing event in my life. I killed an innocent man. And I praised your God for having his fingerprints all over that. So what is happening here? There's the beginnings of faith, isn't it? From a non-Jew trusting in Israel's God, the true God, that he sent his innocent son to die on the cross. That's what's happening there. That's the first response. Second response from the crowd. The crowd was there for the show. Have a look there. All the crowd had assembled for this spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breast. Do you see the crowd? They were bored. They're looking for a spectacle. It was a Roman gladiator or whatever show. That's what's happening there in the Colosseum, but it's now in Jerusalem. They were bored. They needed entertainment. They wanted a show. And they were there from the beginning, by the way. They were the ones shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now they find themselves on the mountain and they're cheering the Roman soldier on when he's nailing those nails into Jesus' hands and feet. And the greatest cheer went up when they lifted Jesus up onto that pole. They joined the soldiers and their leaders and they mocked Jesus and this is what they said. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is our Christ. 
if he is our king. The spectacle on show that day was Rome killing their pretentious, self-appointed king. That's what was on show that day. Crucify him. Crucify our king. Let him save himself. But what happened? When they saw the darkness, the temple curtain, when they heard Jesus' voice, loud voice, they changed. They went home beating their breast. What is that? That is deep sorrow, deep anguish for what we have done. They realized that this is our Christ. This is the one. He claimed to be. He is who he claimed to be. He's our promised Messiah. And you know what? We killed him. His blood was on our hands. That's what they saw. Mocking, shouting, cheering. Now they realized that man's blood is on my hands. And they went home beating their breast. What's happening here? It's the embryos, the beginnings of repentance, isn't it? Seeing your sin for what it is. That's repentance. Seeing the plank in your own eye before you take the splinter out of someone. That's repentance. They saw what they did was kill their own king. An innocent king. Promised Messiah. And they went home and the elements of repentance was there. So we have two beautiful responses from Jew and non-Jew. Faith and repentance. But then we have the last response, and that's the most shocking response of them all. Um, Verse 49. And all the acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching this. And that's all that Luke tells us. These group are called acquaintances. They have been acquainted with Jesus, meaning they have followed Jesus from Galilee. That's from way back. From where he started. Meaning they've seen almost everything that Jesus said and did. And then, when it comes to this darkness, this temple, Jesus' voice, they did nothing. They watched from a distance. Luke is determined or deliberately placing the two responses and the acquaintance responses next to one another to make a point. Have a look. The centurion saw... And he responded, praising God. The crowd saw, and they responded by beating their breast. The acquaintances watched from a distance, and then blank. Nothing. He's he's doing that deliberate to emphasize that true seeing leads to a response. Faith and repentance. Seeing the darkness, the temple, what Jesus said, if you're only acquainted with it, it means nothing. If there's no response, it means nothing. Let me try and illustrate it. There's a story, a trapeze artist. That's one of those guys who puts those cables up with that big pole, and then he walks across that cable. In America, let's say 150 years ago, he put up a show wherever he went. He went to the Niagara Falls in America and he put a cable up, so the story goes, between the two sides. And then a great crowd from the town gathered and said, whoa, what's going on here? 
And so part of his show was talking to them. And he said, do you guys believe that I can walk across this cable? And they said, yes, we do. And then he would get up on his little cable. He would walk to the other side and then walk back. And then he says, okay, do you guys believe I can put a wheelbarrow on this cable and walk the wheelbarrow there and back? And now the crowd's getting excited. He says, of course, yes. So he puts his wheelbarrow on and off he goes. Turns around, comes back. Yeah, now the crowd is in raptures. And then he says, do you guys believe that I can put a person in this wheelbarrow and walk him across the end back? And the crowd went ballistic. Of course, yes, of course. And then he said, can I have a volunteer? (laughs) Nobody. The story goes, nobody climbed into the wheelbarrow except his mother. That's how the story goes. She's part of the show. But my point is, you can, you have to get into that wheelbarrow. That's true faith. What do we do with this momentous news? Jesus wanting to take us across in his wheelbarrow. You have to get in. You have to get, what does it look like to get in? Well, it looks like the centurion. So you might be here today under duress, under duty, duty to the family. In your heart, you're actually here to, um, Fight this, this thing called Jesus. You're not really keen for this. You actually want to, like the centurion, you're just doing your job here. You want to kill this thing. Getting into the wheelbarrow is seeing that Jesus was that innocent man that he claimed to be. Seeing that that God's fingerprints is all over Jesus on the cross. That's faith. Trusting God's plan. You could be here, part of the crowd. You could be here for the spectacle. I would like to go the lights, pink and green and orange. Can you guys do that? The spectacle. (laughs) You might be here for the spectacle. I'm serious. You know, it's once a year. No, no. Easter and Christmas. You come for the spectacle. Regularly. That's a great spectacle the Christians have. So you come to see the spectacle. Getting into that wheelbarrow and seeing that Jesus hangs on the cross for your sins, for my sins. That's getting into the wheelbarrow. His blood is on my hands. The worst response is the acquaintances. They, they, they watch from a distance. There's no faith. There's no repentance. They are still stuck on the other side. Jesus has not taken them over in his wheelbarrow because they are definitely not getting into that wheelbarrow. What do we do? What do we do with this momentous news? Well, answer is clear. You have to respond. You have to see God's fingerprints all over that man on the cross, that innocent man, Christ, Messiah on the cross. No sin. You have to see that. You have to see why he's there for your sins and for my sins. That's why he's there. It's a historical event. It's a deeply personal event. And you have to see his death in your place. A life-changing death. But you can look and you cannot see, uh, not see. That's the acquaintances. That's looking at that and walking around out of here. Nothing. Easter 2023 is a wonderful opportunity for us to look and to see who's on that cross. Who he is and what he came to do for you and for me. And then respond by getting into his wheelbarrow, letting him 
put your life completely. That's what it is, getting into that wheelbarrow. It's not your work. You go to him. Please take me across. Please will you save me. That is the way home. That is the way that Jesus offers us. He says, come, let me save you. Let me take you home. Let me deal with your sin. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you that it is your plan from before the world began to take us home. You knew that we would sin. You knew that we would rebel. Help us see your hand at work on Jesus, when, when Jesus was on the cross. Help us see that it's our sin that helped him there. Help us trust this most amazing plan that you would send your innocent son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins. Completely trusting in your plan, putting his life completely into your hands so that we could come home. Help us repent and believe. Help us not watch from a distance and do nothing. Help us see our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross on this Good Friday for my sins. Amen.